Hello friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Today we're going to be hearing from, again, uh, David Harrison, his ministry sparklightplanet.com, uh, actually his website. Uh, and uh, yeah, last week we were talking about dinosaurs. Uh, we were looking at evidence that dinosaurs and mankind have coexisted. And uh, really, guys, there's so much evidence out there. Uh, David and I are just barely scratching the surface. Uh, but yes, today we're going to continue on talking about more evidence that dinosaurs and mankind have coexisted. Uh, it, it is interesting. Uh, as I placed the part one online last week, my goodness, the, the angry atheists, when you put these types of things online, uh, you get just ambushed. It's like a dog pile of millions of angry atheists that don't want to deal with whatever information, whatever arguments uh, David or I will bring to the table. Uh, no, no, they just want to name call. They want to call you names and feel good about themselves. Uh, it's it's actually kind of sad. Uh, and, and really, there's nothing you can say to these types when you get going. Uh, and all they want to do is call you names. You can debate with them until you're blue in the face. They don't listen to a word you're saying. And they just keep calling you names. It's, uh, <laughs> it's oh boy. I don't know. Where do these people come from? I don't know. Maybe their parents' basement. I, I don't get it. Uh, but <laughs> whatever the case, when I put this for, uh, part one on last week, uh, there was a great response, uh, from, from boy, quite a few of you out there. Uh, and I know you guys are eating this up. Uh, part two tonight, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And, and yes, tonight, in my opinion, is far more interesting than even part one. So uh, buckle up. Here we go. There's so many things that humans weren't able to observe for hundreds of years. And according to materialism, those things weren't real. Microscopic worlds, UV light, um, ultraviolet light, um, infrared light, um, so many things that if you're a materialistic scientist, you say, well, we can't observe it, therefore it's not real. Um, so that says, ah, our science is tied to humanity. If our culture falls apart, if we get, you know, ancient cultures got wiped out by catastrophes, their science disappeared. How omniscient is that? <laughs> and so right. scientists and our observations are tied to humanity. And um, even Darwin himself said, you know, if we're evolved from monkeys and apes and we don't trust their convictions, how do we know we can trust ours? <laughs> And I think oh, he's being really honest there in, in one of his letters to a friend and just saying, you know, humans need to be humble when we say, yeah, this is, you know, this is what we know so far, but there's many things that we don't yet know. And uh, so that's one of my goals is to give students and young people um, a supernatural worldview that says God is the primacy where I get my revelation, not human understanding. And that's yeah. really important. That's really important. That if you can get that in context, then the whole dinosaur thing becomes less of an issue. It's fun, right? But you have a supernatural worldview that's robust that can handle pretty much anything that materialism can throw at it. Sure, absolutely. Amen. Yeah. All right. So when we're looking at science and the supernatural, 
we're really looking at what I call primacy. Um, we're looking at two worldviews, and they stand their foundations on very different things. And so the material worldview, um, also called naturalism, which evolution is based in, is the, is the primacy is of the mind. We trust to our minds above anything else. Also, there's the primacy of death. Everything came from nothing. Everything ends in nothing. Everything ends in death. Um, and so, uh, so death is a primacy, and then chance, undirected processes, that's also your primacy. And so in naturalism, in the material world view, you have to trust that your mind determines truth and reality. Now, we can scientifically show that human science tied to our mind um, can't observe all of reality. Um, so, for example, you ask a materialist scientist of 200 years ago, um, are germs real? No, they can't observe them. We don't have microscopes to observe microscopic worlds. It, I, it, there's such a thing as deep space and billions of galaxies out there. They would say, no, we can't observe that. That's not real. We can't test it. We can't use the scientific method on those things. Why? Because we have a limited observational ability. Um, we can observe UV light, um, infrared light, and many, 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 many things. And so we've built machines to help us broaden our observational horizons. Does that make sense? Right. We've built machines to help us see more, but how much more is out there that we don't yet see? And so we have materials today that say, the supernatural, we can't observe it. We can't see it. It's not, you know, it's not real. But I would argue um, it's just the unobserved. And the Bible actually argues that we could interact in the supernatural world. Adam and Eve interacted with supernatural beings. With, they walked with God in the garden. Um, they, um, we see different instances in the Bible where God opens the eyes with Elisha and Elijah. When Elisha gets swept up, he says, God, open the eyes of my servant so he can see. God opens his eyes. He sees the supernatural realm. And so I believe we've actually, actually degenerated to the extent that we can't observe the supernatural. Now, there's many people, shamans and other people, that are trying to reconnect to that, but God has kind of protected us from that because that's a pretty dangerous world to get into. And, um, right. so, and then even the naturalist scientists like Bill Nye, they believe in the supernatural. How is that, you say? They believe that life comes <laughs> from non-life. They, they, they fight the law of biogenesis, it's actually a law, that says life comes from life. Life begets like. They say um, life doesn't come from life, it comes from non-life. That is by definition outside of nature and is therefore by definition a supernatural process. Same thing with the origin of the universe from essentially nothing. Ian Juvie does a great job with this on Genesis Week on YouTube. If, if you get on there, um, type in Genesis Week or Ian Juvie, he's got some great work on showing that the materialist evolutionary scientists believe in supernatural processes. They just don't admit it. Right, so, yeah. <clears throat> so I think understanding that science is handicapped, we can't observe all of reality. Also, in Big Bang cosmology, they've made up dark matter and dark energy, which they say, we can't observe it, but it must be there because it supports their theory. So they actually claim to believe in two supernatural things outside of nature, 
It can't be observed in the scientific process, can't be reproduced, can't be tested, can't be falsified. And so they claim right. belief in supernatural things by definition. How is that different from the creationist saying, we have life coming from life. It's not a biological life form. God is not biological, but we have life coming from life which fits the laws of biogenesis. And we can't observe him? No. We can see his effects. But that claim is no different from the claim of dark matter and dark energy. And so um, I think they shoot themselves in the foot and really um, it erodes their, their foundation um, to believe that the only real things are the things that we can observe. And that's what materialistic science is built on. Amen. Amen. So, and that, that actually leads me to um, many, I have quite a few friends who, what we would call old earthers or deep timers, um, actually don't like to call myself a young earther because thousands of years is pretty old. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an old, old earther, I'm an old earther. <laughs> if that makes sense. Because if we give them that ground of old earth and young earth, then we let them define our position too much in the sense that the earth is old. It's thousands of years old. It doesn't have to be millions of years old to be really old, if that makes sense. And I heard that from a creationist, and I was like, I think that's a really good point. Um, but getting back, um, you know, they'll say, you know, God could have used natural processes. He could have used millions of years. And um, when we look at God and what he does, there's two principles that come out. Um, there's a principle of uh, immediacy. So we see this with Jesus. Whenever he does something, he does a miracle, he heals an ear that's been cut off in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's all the way healed immediately. He changes water to wine. He brings someone back to life, regenerating dead tissue. A pretty supernatural process. It happens in immediacy. And it's fully formed and functioning. The wine's not halfway wine. The guy's not halfway alive like in Princess Bride. <laughs> and so, why wouldn't God in creation be the same way? So I have a lot of um, theistic evolutionary friends who will say, you know, the cosmos must be millions of years old. Um, but Adam and Eve, they're probably fully formed human beings. They're not, they're not descendants of primates. They weren't babies. Um, and so they say, okay, well, Adam and Eve could be fully formed and functioning. I'd also say, well, what about the ecosystem? There's plants that can't survive without insects and different things. You have to have fully formed ecosystems all instantaneously or it all breaks down. And people who study the, not the balance of ecosystems will tell you this. It's a, they're amazingly balanced and put together. And so God creates fully formed and functioning ecosystems. Well, the universe is not that more complex than a cell or a human, depending on your perspective, how big you are. So... God creating a fully functioning universe, he's not lying to us because he said he did it supernaturally. So they'll say, well, you know, the, the light takes billions of years to get to us, and in that light is all the information, the stars exploding and all these processes. He'd be lying to us. And I'm like, well, if he said he did it supernaturally, he's not lying. And so we right. really have to say, how did God say he did it? You brought up at the beginning of this how... Um, in the New Testament, it talks about how Adam and Eve were from the beginning. Now, in the deep time, Adam and Eve show up at the very, very end of 
history as we know right. it. Right, right. <laughs> it also says that the Satan and the Nakash was a liar from the beginning. Right. And a very interesting passage in Isaiah 48. Um, I'll read this to you. Um, starting in verse 3, says, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. And then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. And I said, Is this referring to creation? And I kept reading. I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, My idol did them. My carved image on my idol image commanded them. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, who I called. I am he, I am the first and the last. My hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. Sounds supernatural. And I called them, they stand forth together. God, near to me and hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have not been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God. Two cool things in that passage. So I believe yeah. that the, verse 3 is actually talking about creation. They went out from my mouth, I announced them, and then suddenly I did them. I read it, and I'm like, whoa. Wow. That adds to the principle of immediacy. And I was like, that's cool. That's basically God saying, I spoke it, guys, and it happened fast. <laughs> what, what scripture was that again? It's Isaiah 48. It starts in mm. 3 and goes um, to verse 16. Verse 16 is also amazing because um, this is God speaking. He says, And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. This is the Lord your name of the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God. So how can the Lord God send the Lord God and his spirit? Because it's the Trinity. It's the Godhead right there. Yeah. Yep. I love this passage because the Godhead shows up, all three persons, and um, there's there's a great scholar, Michael S. Heiser, who has done yep. a great series on the Godhead in the Old Testament, and how the ancient Jews believed in the two powers, Daniel chapter 7 and stuff, and that is a whole other talk. Um, but Isaiah, that's one of my favorite passages, that shows that God not only is a supernatural being, um, and, and here's the other thing is, how big is our God? If he is a God who creates things and has to be bound to their natural processes, then you make God the plow horse of naturalistic evolution. He has to pull creation through millions and millions of years of death, dying, and suffering. What kind of a God is that? Right, right. So, it, it sounds more like a cosmic uh, tinker or a scientist. Yeah. Really? He is truly supernatural, and he claims to be. He claims to be outside of time and space. He claims to be the origin of everything. He claims to have spoken these things into existence. Um, then to take him at his word, he is truly supernatural. He is outside of the natural processes he created, and he's not bound to them. And so I think getting a clear picture of who our creator is and how he said he does things, he creates fully functioning systems, he creates them in immediacy. We see this from the miracles of Christ. We actually see this from Isaiah that I just read, and um, so I think those principles speak very clearly um, to this concept of the supernatural, and we fit that with genetics, that genetic life is young because it's degenerating too fast. Um, I, I, so that's why I say I believe on young life on Earth in the thousands of years. I don't know if it's exactly 10,000 or exactly what, um, but the Bible indicates that life is young, and that Man was created from the beginning, and I've just created a, a project that I'm hopefully going to publish um, 
in a couple of months called Genesis Harmonized. Because I asked him, hmm. I'm like, ah, what, where else does Adam show up in the Bible? Where else does, does Noah show up in the Bible? Um, does the Bible talk about creation in other places? And so I wanted to create, kind of like people created a harmonized New Testament where they put all the Gospels together. I, my goal is to harmonize Genesis and say, let's go through Genesis, look where else in the Bible it talks about this thing in Genesis, and put it all together into one book. And so oh. you can actually... Oh, that'd be sweet. You can actually find this on my website now. Um, just email me, and I'll send you the free um, PDF. But I'm to publish it, I needed to use um, a Bible version that was free, that didn't have copyrights, and so I'm redoing essentially the verses um, that way. But that's how I came across Isaiah 48, um, was through this research. And um, so I start with God in the heaven, in the heavens. Job, in Job it talks about how the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation of the earth. And so it, it shows... Okay, God is in heaven with his supernatural being even before creation. There's verses that talk about that, then they talk about the creation, and all the way down through the flood. Um, and Noah's mentioned all over the New Testament. So if we actually didn't have, if we didn't have the Old Testament, we pretty much have all the doctrines of creation from the New Testament, even without the Old Testament, just from New Testament passages and other passages from the prophets and things without the first five books of, of the Bible. And that, to me, is fascinating, um, how this idea of creation and, and Genesis shows up all throughout the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, um, right, and in Second in, uh, Peter, I believe, it even uh, mentions that in the last days, people would be scoffing at the idea that there was a worldwide flood and that there was some kind of a, a, a worldwide judgment um, that's prophetic. Boy, you could you could preach on that. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so I think I think it's really important um, as as someone who cares about science, as a, as a Christian, someone who believes in the supernatural, to um, to really the more uh, this is what I tell my high school students that I work with: learning is for worship. Everything you learn about this world should be worship. You're learning about God and His creation whether it's mathematics, whether it's natural sciences, um, learning is really for worship. And so I don't think we have given our, our young people a cohesive history of, of the world in a biblical context all that much. Of, of, yes. Where does the Ice Age fit? Um, how did the flood affect the climate and rapid climate change? So with the time we have left, if it's cool, I'm going to get into kind of dinosaurs and biblical history a timeline, timeline of events and extinction. Yeah, yeah. Really quick, though, just for consideration, uh, something we, we haven't talked about yet, and uh, straight from the Bible, talking about the, the great whale or fish that swallowed Jonah. I just want to throw this in here really quick because it, it is a little fascinating. Um, to be honest, I don't know if I buy this theory, but I think it's fun to consider. It's just a fun little rabbit trail to consider. Um, in the New Testament where Jesus is talking about this uh, belly of the whale, um, or Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 40, and it's talking about Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, that Greek word is ketos. I might be mispronouncing it, but... Historically speaking, this uh, ketos 
But I guess there's also a Greek um, uh, version of the Old Testament that also translates this word ketos. Uh, Greek does have a word for whale, and ketos is not it. Mm-hmm. Historically, ketos is some kind of huge uh, serpent creature that has a head that somewhat, okay, loosely resembles that of a dog or a wolf. And there are uh, 13 ancient authors who write about this uh, serpentine creature, this Ketos. Uh, Homer's one of them. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's a whole list of different historians uh, that have mentioned this Ketos. It's just it's a little fascinating. It's a fun rabbit trail. Uh, there is a famous 230-foot-long uh, tapestry. <clears throat> I'm going to mispronounce this. The, the Bayou? tapestry. Uh, It's in Normandy, France. It depicts William Duke of Normandy and uh, he's on a boat and the front of the boat has one of these ketos. Basically, the the front of the boat is fashioned after one of these ketos. There's also Native Americans that have totem pole carvings of a serpentine. It's a a huge serpent with a wolf head. Sea wolf. Yeah. Um, and there's also a Celtic cross in Scotland uh, that uh, it's, uh, it was made in, in uh, 800 AD, and it depicts Jonah being swallowed by one of these serpents with a dog-like head. And, it, and there's a sign near it that says, uh, the sea creature with the wolf's head swallows a man. Yeah. <laughs> so just kind of a fun rabbit trail. I wanted to mention that. I just couldn't pass up the Bible uh, and, and, and potentially that being another instance where there's some kind of a, a sea dinosaur being depicted. Who knows? God knows. Yeah. It, but it uh, anyway. Um, actually, um, I put together a book called Sparklight Planet. And it's just kind of yes. trying to gather the best science on origin. And I did a second edition called Sparklight Planet 2.0. But um, starting on, on page 231, I get into the historical records of, of dragons and dinosaurs, and, and then um, I also get into the artwork of, um, like, what do we find in ancient artworks? And I spent, you know, many hours just perusing the Internet. Um, so on page 366 of the Sparklight Planet 2.0, which is on my website, uh, sparklightplanet.com, um, I found fascinating artwork from all over the world, and actually Noah comes up. And if you do a search for Noah, dragon, um, you'll see different pictures that pop up that speak just to that theme of some kind of not-whale sea creature that follows Jonah. Um, so there's actually several pictures I've actually seen of that, um, and that is fascinating. Um, but the amount of uh, historical records, uh, newspaper records from the 1300s, figurines, um, Two great books on this, again, will be Dire Dragons by Vance Nelson. And then, um, you see, the other book is Dragons, Legends, Lore, Legends and Lore of Dinosaurs by Buddy Hodge and Lauren Walsh. And um, in there, they even have, you know, the different names of, of the, the cultures and what they call the, the, the dragons. So, um, so there's Arabic, Chinese, Lung, Lung, and Lung were two different, three different Chinese words for dragon. Um, and we know the Chinese 
they're pretty dragon crazy. Um, Marco, <laughs> Polo, Marco Polo has records of hanging out with the Mongolians um, and seeing basically uh, 30-foot dragons, he describes them, and how they hunt them and kill them and, and use their different pipe parts for medicinal purposes. Um, they show you why these things went extinct, even in Marco Polo's records. Um, they hunted them for, you know, just as today we have rare animals, rhinoceros, who are getting hunted just for their horns or for medicinal things. That's what happened to our dragons throughout history. Um, if you wanted to be famous, like St. George and play a dragon, then, um, then that. So those two books are full of figurines, artistic representations of dragons, and um, really fun stuff. So you mentioned Marco Polo. Uh, writing about um, um, what could be a dinosaur. Do you have that text available to you uh, yeah. that you could read that portion? Here we go. <clears throat> so this is from the travels of Marco Polo, and um, he lived in the 13th century. Uh, concerning a further part of the province of Karzan, in this province we found snakes and great serpents of such vast size as to strike fear into those who would see them. And so hideous that they very account of them must excite the wonder of those who hear it. I will tell you how long and big they are. You may be assured that some of them are ten paces or thirty feet in length, and some are more some are more and some uh, less. And if you're just trying to make this up and exaggerate, you wouldn't say, you know, there's different sizes, so I find that very interesting. It seems like <laughs> yeah, there's some bigger, there's some smaller. Uh, but you know, the one I saw was about thirty feet long. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, and in bulk, they're equal to a great cask, um, which is like a big barrel. Uh, so the bigger ones are about 10 palms in girth. They have two forelegs near the head, um, but for feet, nothing but claws, uh, like the claws of a hawk or a lion. Their heads are very wow. big, and the eyes are bigger than a great loaf of bread. The mouth is large enough to swallow a man whole. Hmm, interesting. Um, it's garish and with great pointed teeth. And in short, they are so fierce-looking and so hideously ugly that every man and beast must stand in fear and trembling of them. There are also smaller ones, such as of eight paces long and of five and one pace only. So it's talking about babies. Um, Polo goes into depth um, on the means and different methods of how they hunted them and killed them and used their flesh for, for eating um, and different things like that in his records. Um, John of Damascus is another one, um, and he describes um, uh, dragons and serpents, um, and um, so John of Damascus and Herodotus and Josephus all describe flying serpents, and especially when they would enter Egypt, um, the Edis, which is a famous bird in Egypt, venerated in Egypt would actually attack these flying serpents and kill them, and the Egyptians celebrated this. <laughs> and so the historians wrote about that as well. Uh, well, I, you know, now, nowadays, I suppose that would be pretty noteworthy. I mean, that would be all over the news oh, yeah. uh, when when people, you know, kind of how uh, Ken Hovind jokingly talks about Bubba killing the, the pterodactyl or whatever, 
You know, it's, it would be the same thing. I mean, people will load their walls with, you know, the, the, the antlers and the heads of some of the bigger animals they're able to shoot. Um, it would be the same thing. We would be going after the meat. We would also be looking at the trophy bragging rights, if you will, of killing this or that animal yeah. or dinosaur for that matter. We would be looking for those bragging rights. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, there's several other historians, um, Alexander the Great, um, as recorded by Claudius Alenius, um, in AD 175, um, he was essentially a Roman historian, and he writes about Alexander the Great's armies, um, when they went into India, um, I'll just read it, um, he came parts of India into a common, uh, commotion and took possession of the others encountered along with many animals. So basically, Alexander the Great was was kind of a big game hunter <laughs> in his travels. Um, so there's a serpent which lived in a cavern and was regarded as sacred by the Indians, who paid a great and superstitious reverence. Accordingly, Indians went to all the imploring Alexander to permit nobody to attack the serpent. He assented to their wish, and now as the army passed the cavern and caused the noise, the serpent was aware of it. Um, because they have sharp hearing and keen eyesight. It hissed and snorted so violently that all were terrified and confounded. It was reported to measure 70 cubits along um, and was not visible all of its length. Uh, there's other records of them actually killing a large reptile and skinning it and sending its skin back to Rome, and it was about 30 feet long. And so wow. the, the historical records are replete with, with descriptions that really can't be much else. Um, also, a lot of the figurines and pictographs from the Ica stones of Peru to the Abacambo figurines in Central America and Peru um, have shown features of dinosaurs that we didn't even know they had until the last 50 years. So whether it's ridges on the head or dorsal fins upright um, or different things like that, um, even skin patterns and textures, um, these are on the figurines. Um, and so they either had to have an amazing paleontologist and digging all these things up to more, uh, to more of an extent than even we do today, <laughs> or they actually saw these things in real life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and friends, you can find these pictures of the Ica stones. Uh, also, as, as David was talking, I just decided to type in Ketos and, uh, look for images of the Ketos. My goodness, uh, there's pottery, there's uh, various paintings, sculptures, there's uh, old, old artwork depicting somebody holding a human by their ankles and dangling them over the side of the boat as a Ketos is, is uh, chomping away at them. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty uh, gruesome. Yeah. But uh, there is more artwork than you really would know what to do with depicting these ketos. Uh, yeah, there's lots of good pictures of the Ica stones. Um, what other artwork is out there depicting um, dragons or dinosaurs? Um, well, let's see. I'll go through Vance Nelson's Dire Dragons book just briefly. Um, Peru, there's pottery and figurines of uh, triceratops, um, uh, some pterodactyl figurines. And an interesting thing about pterodactyls or uh, pteranodons is when they when they are on the ground standing, their wings hook back up and 
Um, so it looks like they're a dragon with wings. So if you just Google Pteranodon sitting or perched, um, they actually look like a griffin. And so wow. um, there's a, there's a, a, a gentleman who's done a lot of research, and he's referenced on my website, um, kind of tracking griffins through history. And griffins are most probably just pteranodons or pterodactyls, um, but in their sitting position, um, those wings fold up and kind of kick back over their back, and they look like wings. And so when you see St. playing the dragon, and it has those wings, it's, it's kind of a distortion of him slaying a pteranodon or a pterodactyl. Some of the other depictions are very lizard-like. Um, but there's, um, in Peru, there's tapestries um, with dinosaurs on them. Um, Europe, there's carvings. And what I love about Vance Nelson's book is they've actually um, drawn the dinosaur it depicts to match the figurine. So, like, um, in St. Andrew's Hall, um, there's a juvenile theropod sculpture of a, most likely, a, a juvenile T-Rex. And they have the picture of the juvenile T-Rex and then the sculpture side by side, and you're like, whoa. <laughs> you're like, okay, that makes a lot of sense, what they saw. Um, another great is the uh, Carlisle's Cathedral theropods. Um, this is on a tomb, um, on one of the tombs of uh, Bishop Richard Bell. And uh, these theropods, um, they're long-necked dinosaurs. Now, one of them, it actually has spikes on the end of its tail, and we've actually found a theropod with spikes on the end of its tail. And <laughs> so just fascinating. Um, from Wales to the Netherlands, um, so France, um, the carvings. Um, are quite interesting. And um, the Royal Chateau of Boris in France in the 16th century has a uh, platysaurus on it. And if you show a picture of the platysaurus in this sculpture, they're almost identical. Um, so that, that's fascinating. All the way to Africa, um, different tapestries. And um, so... Uh, it's, it's really fun just to uh, to go through this book and look through the different things. Um, and that that's uh, the Untold Secrets of Planet Earth Dire Dragons. Yes, by Vance Nelson. Uh, Vance Nelson. I'm looking at it right now. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, I don't know if Vance Nelson has his own website that he would prefer that you get it from, but uh, you can get it on Amazon. Amazon or Creation.com. Um, Creation.com has a deal right now for both books, I think, for $50. Um, oh, wow. They're, they're full color, um, illustrated, a little expensive, but I would say worth it. Um, there's figurines uh, from Maui of him and riding dinosaurs, Maui figurines, um, which it shows two distinctly different kinds of, um, of dinosaurs from Maui. Um, Ethiopia is replete with the things, and then China has a lot of uh, Triceratops and Centrosaurus Centrosaurus figurines. Um, kind of a, a species of Triceratops. Um, so I, I got this book for Christmas. And I was like, yay, this is fun. So, <laughs> so things that I hadn't even seen in my research um, popped up. And so 
this the historical, archaeological um, evidence is fascinating and um, hard to really. Um, they, they couldn't. They're described and carved or pictured in such detail that they really can't be anything else. Especially when you see the side by side comparison, um, it's very convincing from Nelson's book. Yeah, and and the question then is. Why? Why would we have these figurines, potteries, de- you know, depictions of dinosaurs across the globe from many different time periods, all depicting what appear to be dinosaurs? Why would that? I mean, is it some kind of strange cultural thing where we all just want to draw giant reptilian creatures that all seem to look the same, or? Is there a theme here, as in these creatures existed on the planet at one time and mankind actually saw them? Yeah, we actually coexisted with them. And um, so, you know, the science evidence combined with the, the, the testimonies of historians, the archaeological evidence is very fascinating. Another great book on this is called After the Flood by Bill Cooper. He's from Britain. And he's gone into the Brits, Britain, the Celts, and the Saxons' genealogies. And the Saxons have an 8,000-year genealogy that goes back to Adam. The Brits' genealogies go back to Noah. And so he had said, well, if the Bible genealogy of history can be accurate, well, we should find out in other cultures. And so he has done research in the, the, uh, the British, the, the Celts, and the Saxon genealogies and actually produced evidence for this. And the story of Beowulf and the dragon, uh, the Grindel. Um, in the original translation, he's slaying a creature that's very much like a T-Rex. And how he slays it, he rushes in underneath those little arms of the T-Rex. He lops one off and then runs away and the thing bleeds to death. That's <laughs> what the story says. And so you can find it in After the Flood by uh, Bill Cooper. It's actually, um, you can still buy the book, but you can actually find it online for free on several different websites as well. That's another fascinating book. Okay. So, um, you mentioned Sparklight Planet. Uh, there's the first one, and now there's Sparklight Planet 2.0. Can you describe those two books and tell everybody how they can get their hands on them? Okay. Um, yeah, the first book was, it's a compilation of kind of the best science evidence on origins, mostly from the creation perspective that I could find because I feel like the public education system has given you a, a great dissertation of the natural progressive evolution side. Um, and so I wanted to, to do a combination of those things with Sparklight and the planet. And um, I wanted to include pictures in it and make it so it was interesting, but also have links to deeper articles and more scientific journals and stuff like that. And so... If you go to uh, my website, uh, sparklightplanet.com, click on books, and you'll see um, the Sparklight and the Planet. You go there, um, enter your name and email, and you can request it from me, and I'll send you um, a link to download um, those e-books for free. And they're free because I've had wonderful scientists and other researchers that have let me use their material, from J.C. Sanford um, to others, and... um, so my goal is just to be a trailblazer and get this information out in a creative and visually interesting way. Um, Dr. Mike Little, uh, 
Superman uh, trained to equip dot org let me use um, much of his material um, in this book as well. And so, um, and I wanted to find something that that spoke to young people that had um, interesting visuals because if you do a science talk with young people, uh, most of them go to sleep. And so, right. <laughs> visuals help a lot and um, just connecting these things with everything from climate change to, um, you know, why does origins matter? Well, it even matters with body image because if you're a product of evolution, then the more beautiful people, the stronger people should survive. And if you're ugly, maybe you're not worth as much. Maybe you should survive as well. That's an evolutionary viewpoint that can be justified in that way. But if you're a special creation of God, then everyone is unique and everyone is an imager of God. And say you were born handicapped. That's, That's an effect of the fall and our separation from God, but there's restoration of that. In the naturalistic evolutionary worldview, if you're born handicapped, tough luck. That's just your lot in life. It's, 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 it's natural selection and, and nature is red in tooth and jaw is the way things progress. And so even everything to body image is tied in with origins. Um, climate change, the, the conflict in Israel um, is tied into origins. Because <laughs> if there is no God, then it's just people fighting over land. But if there is a God, it's tied in with his promise of the coming Messiah and Redeemer and the land that he actually gave to these people. And that's why they have a right to it. It's because God gave it to them. Amen. Amen to that. And so, um, um, but if there is no God, then it's just a squabble. That, and, and, and everything from um, eugenics to, to wiping out other peoples and cultures, um, the Holocaust to the, the rape of Nanking by the Japanese in World War II, against the Chinese, if it's just natural progressive evolution, they were just trying to survive and wipe out the other people. You know, and that's not wrong. That's natural selection. Right, right. Either whoa, God, whoa. They're destroying imagers. <laughs> and yes. that is against his laws. Because um, God can create and destroy what he wants to. He's the maker. But his creation has to abide by his laws and rules. And so that's why origins really matters on this stuff. Right, right. And if there are rules, and we are breaking those rules, you know, like the Ten Commandments, uh, we've all told lies, we've all stolen things, uh, we've hated people. Every one of us has hated somebody in our life. According to Jesus, if you hate somebody uh, in your heart, it's akin to murder. Uh, we have lusted after people. It, the, the commandments, thou shall not commit adultery. Well, if we lust after somebody, we've still committed adultery in our heart, again, according to Jesus. And the wages of those sins are death. That's eternal separation from God. That's, guys, some people don't like me mentioning this, but that's hell. That That is eternal torment. Yeah. Um, and... Go ahead. I just did a talk with this with the youth on broken hearts in our broken world. And actually, I just put it up on a website via YouTube. Um, but I talked about how religion tries to make good people. But the Bible yeah. says we're dead. So all religion does is make really good dead people. <laughs> what we need is life. So the Bible says because we're separated from God, we're dead. We're born, in, we're born into death. We're the walking dead. 
Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a very happy thing to think about, but, but from the instant you're born, you're one breath away from death. And the reason you sin is not because we're bad, it's because you're dead. And so goodness is not going to bring life into you. You need a life transplant uh, from the Creator. That's why J.C. Stanford says with this degeneration of the human race, the only rescue is a supernatural rescue. Because science shows that you're degenerating into destruction and death. That's, that's our destiny, unless we have a supernatural intervention. And that's why I'm excited about the, the origins message, is because it brings right back to the forefront our supernatural creator. And the necessity um, that we need life. We need the life transplant because all our goodness, when we, when, we're, when we accept the life of Christ in us, goodness becomes worship. But before that, goodness is meaningless. It's filthy rags. It doesn't yeah. mean, uh-huh. it's, it's, since it's not connected to the life source, it can actually separate us from God. Because the more good we think we are, we don't think we need life anymore. So God allows everything to fall apart, the curse, um, because we would trust that life is in the stuff of earth. And I think that's why he allows pain and suffering is he allows this, this broken world Otherwise, we think, oh, I can get life from my relationships, from this car, from a great education. And when he allows those things to fall apart, we realize, oh, I, I put my identity into the wrong things. My identity yeah. we put in Christ first. And when those things fall apart, yeah, it hurts, but it doesn't destroy you. And so that's actually God's gracious warning in Genesis chapter 3, that where we'll go wrong unless we center our identity in him first. And I'm excited about that message getting out to youth because it helps them deal with real life. Mm. Boy, yeah. So, Preach that's it. That's my <laughs> sermon for, <laughs> for now. I don't know. Do we have time? Do we want to talk about how dinosaurs died out, um, their extinction in the biblical worldview? Um, hey, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's jump into this um, because the Noah's Ark ties into this and it's fascinating. Um, Okay, so we have creation. Um, taking it from a biblical viewpoint, creation of all things, um, including the dinosaurs, the large reptiles, and things like that. They live in a pre-flood atmosphere um, that enables them to grow bigger and live longer. Um, and so your big dinosaurs are just big old dinosaurs. Um, when man separates himself from God, um, man enters into death. The creation is separated, Romans chapter 8. Um, creation is separated and groaning in this degeneration. And so animals, it says at the beginning, God gave them plants to eat, both to man and to animals. There's actually some very interesting scientific evidence that shows that herbivorism is the natural, original setting for most creatures. Pandas um, are herbivores, but their teeth are carnivoristic. Um, There's examples of lions and cats and sharks who are 100% herbivores. Never even in yeah. life. Um, so that's fruit bats. Yeah. Fruit bats and stuff like that. So just because... So the same type of thing. They have really sharp teeth. They look like they're meat eaters, yeah. but they're not. Yeah. And so even bears are mostly herbivores, um, for example. And, and many large cats are, eat, eat grass and other things. Um, and so it's my contention that the part of the degeneration was things degenerating into carnivorism. And um, so 
you know, that kind of entropy or degeneration entering into nature. And um, then we have, so, dinosaurs living with humans, and there's coexistence, there's harmony, um, and um, then we have the flood. God chooses to rescue and judge humanity. It's both. Um, it's a judgment on humanity, it's a rescue of humanity, because um, we were destroying ourselves, we were trying to align with supernatural beings and worship them, and it was destroying us. And so God had God brought a rescue. And what's really interesting I found when I was reading the Hebrew is it says, uh, take two pairs of unclean animals, that's actually four, and then take right. two sevens of the clean animals. And so Noah would have taken um, four a male, two males, two females of all the unclean animals, and then 14, two, seven males and seven females of the clean animals. So it's just not two and two, it's actually four and four um, that go into the ark, and then seven and seven that go into the ark. So in the Hebrew, it's talking about pairs, two pairs, two sevens. Um, that to me is fascinating because God has a backup animal. Which I'm like, that's really smart. <laughs> and then the evolutionists contend, you can't get all these animals from just the, the animals on the ark, but I'm like, you guys believe in at least two or three catastrophes that wipe out almost all life on earth. And then it rebounds to all the creatures we have today. There's right. Extinction events, and we only have one extinction event in the Bible, um, and all land and air-breathing creatures come over in multiple pairs. Um, there's plenty of genetic information, especially when they're the ancestral kinds. Um, Noah wouldn't have to take the large old animals with him; he'd take young ones. Um, so, the largest dinosaur that we have, its baby, is about the size of a, a cow a large cow. Um, and so you can easily fit juvenile animals. They eat less, they're more robust, they live longer after the flood. Another interesting thing is, what would you feed them? Um, you, there'd actually be huge floating plant mats on the ocean. Um, we saw this with the tsunamis in Japan. They ripped up a ton of vegetation life, and it was floating around on the oceans. And that's actually what created a bunch of, like, log mats. That's what created a lot of the coal layers during the flood. And so sure. you could feed them by what you took on the ark, but you could also dredge up all this plant life on the surface of the ocean and feed that to your animals as well. So huh. feeding the animals, not a problem. <laughs> and if you're smarter um, and stronger back then, you're going to be able to take care of the creatures anyway because you're an amazing engineer. Um, so back to dinosaurs. So they, they, they crossed through on the ark. Um, what we have after the flood is rapid climate change. Imagine um, a world torn apart, plate tectonics, volcanism, um, and one of the, the most interesting theories that I've come across is by Dr. Walter Brown, called the hydroplate theory. Yes, um, yeah. There's, there's many different kind of flood theories, but his is most interesting because it accounts for a rapid ice age. Um, when you have rapid plate tectonics, um, right after the flood, the, the continental plates would be resting higher on the mantle. And so there'd be higher elevations that gathers more condensation, more snowfall. Um, and then another book I came across, this lady's actually cataloged over 130 different sites where there's cities buried underwater. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah, about 300 feet underwater. It's called Sunken Realms by Karen Mutton. And um, this means that the ocean levels were at least 300 feet lower at one time. And they rapidly ascended. That means the continents settled down 
the ice age where ice melted and the ocean levels rose. Um, and so right after you, after they come out in the arc, it's a wet planet. Big inland ocean lakes, everything's green and lush, super saturated with water from the flood. Um, the sediments, the earth itself is like a huge sponge that's just soaked up all this stuff. And then you get a rapid ice age and that stuff tries, starts to dry out. Um, your deserts begin to form. And all of that, you have warm cold cycles, rapid shifts. Um, so essentially this global warming that we're having is just an after effect of the flood and what it did to the earth in this rapid climate change cycle. So um, if you're a deep timer, you go back in history and you see the, the climate change fluctuations, they spread it out over millions of years. Um, that could actually be interpreted if you squished it as rapid climate change within thousands of years. Really quick, just a side note, Sunken Realms, I'm looking at it right now on Amazon. Uh, is she coming at this from a biblical perspective or no? no? She's completely secular. Um, nothing that I read in her book connects to the Bible or anything else. Um, they would date these um, probably about eight to 10,000 years with carbon-14 dating and, and other things. Um, so she's not really trying to fit these in a biblical framework. Um, okay, okay. When you, adjust, when you adjust some of their dating methods, it actually fits in the biblical framework. It, yeah, it, it definitely has more of a, a new age almost feel when you look at the cover. Nonetheless, I'm probably going to pick me one up. I, I just threw it in the wish list. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, so that uh, was even the, the, the Black Sea um, was inundated with water at one time when the ocean levels rose. Some guys are claiming that's the flood of Noah. I'm like, no, that's a post-flood inundation. Um, when the continent settled down, um, essentially what you have is the, the mountains, the continent plates hit rapidly and formed the mountains. Those uh-huh. settled down and push up the plateaus on either side. The Colorado Plateau is one example. There's Lynn, Mongolia, another plateau. Um, and so you have the Earth trying to equalize and lots of earthquakes. And um, no wonder the days of Peleg, they called it the division of the Earth. I believe the days of Peleg was when these continents settled down and the ocean levels rose and it separated the continent. Okay. And, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it could be just as valid as the dividing of the peoples or the nations, possibly, but um, geologically, that's what I would call an Earth Division event, <laughs> in that sense. Um, before that, the animals could actually migrate all over the planet um, on land before those ocean levels rose, and that, that solves a lot of the migration issues. Sure. So, um, so as those rapid climate changes happen, the dinosaurs have a hard time adjusting and surviving, um, and then as populations grow, they hunt them, which we just saw from our dinosaur artwork and descriptions is, yeah, what are these people doing? And we have historical records, they're hunting them. They're using them for medicine and, and different things like that. Um, maybe false medicines, <laughs> you know, um, just like rhinoceros horns don't really do anything for you. Um, but um, the ancients, you know, do that kind of stuff. And so they're hunted off the environment changes, and um, we have essentially what happens with tons of animals all over the earth is we have extinction, um, and we still have it even going on today. Um, we have lots of extinction going on, so it shouldn't surprise us that these these rare animal groups, um, these ferocious creatures, are getting hunted off and going extinct. 
um, about different things. And they're smaller. We still have reptiles, the Komodo dragon today, which is much smaller. And in very remote areas of the world, um, there still might be some uh, dinosaur uh, representative species possibly living. Um, we'll see. There still could be Ropen in New Guinea. There could be Mokole and Bimbe in the Congo. Um, yeah. Actually, get them? We don't know for sure. <laughs> but the eyewitness accounts are fascinating of possibly in the ocean um, and, and remote areas of the continent. Um, a great example is the panda in China, which thought to have been extinct. It took them 50 years to find a panda in China when they were looking. When Europeans came in, did expeditions trying to find pandas, they couldn't find it for 50 years. Um, and so it's hard to find a very rare um, species. Especially yeah. in the Congo, that's a tough place to be around. So. That's right. There's a lot of insects. It's it's a really tough environment, yeah. and that's why nobody's. There's been very few expeditions in there to see if we can locate these Mokoli yeah. uh, Mokoli. Oh, I can't even say it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that. So, so I mean, it's it's a tough uh, it's a tough world to survive in, um, and the and the. I think, I mean, so many of these ancient cultures, I guess it's like the Chinese because they ate the evidence. They ate all the dinosaur bones. Um, they ground them up and using them medicinal powers. So you're not going to find the evidence from these cultures for them coexisting with actual dinosaurs except in their pictorial representations because they ate everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Chinese, you ate my evidence. Arr. So. <laughs> well, I'm sure they were tasty with soy sauce. I know, I know. I love the culture. There's fascinating stuff in there, ancient characters and stuff. And but that's my one contention with them. I'm like, why did you eat the evidence? So, fun stuff. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't see the this uh, theory of evolution and millions of years coming. No, uh, it, it wasn't a concern. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean that's the thing. I'm amazed that we have as many records as we do because if they would have lived with these creatures, they would never have been like. Oh yeah, in a couple thousand years, maybe you're going to die out, and people won't believe they exist. Maybe I should write about it. Like, right. How many of us write about cars today? You know, and thousands <laughs> of years from now, if God doesn't come back, are we going to look back and be like, "What were those things?" You know, you find a few pictures of these things. You know, this it's, it's a very off the wall example, um, but even with Job and the ancient biblical writings. Um, you know, there's so many things that are real, even in their days, that aren't in the Bible. Like, there's no elephant, there's no giraffe in the Bible um, that I know of, though they were around back then. And so, you know, why doesn't the Bible talk more about dragons and, and dinosaurs? Well, it doesn't talk about a lot of things, um, which is okay. You know, God has a specific message in there for us. And it wasn't necessarily like, hey, guys, let's get, get distracted on, on dragons. Let me give you some historical records. Right, right, right. So we see in Job, when he's going to talk about his amazing creatures, he brings some interesting creatures up and um, stuff. So I don't have a whole lot more. Um, if there's any questions on kind of the, the typical timeline of, of events there, um, when you combine it with the environmental changes and growth of populations, I think it, you can understand why these creatures died out and are so rare. 
Right. Okay, so if my listeners go to your website, that's sparklightplanet.com, sparklightplanet.com, there is an area where you can, on the homepage, let's see, I'm going to go there right now and just look at it. Um, No, it is not on the homepage. Um, Books, Sparklight Planet. Okay, you go to the Sparklight Planet uh, uh, page under books, you can enter your name and your email address, and in the comments section, you just request, hey, I would like to have the uh, Sparklight Planet 1 and 2. Yeah. Oh, look, there is a PDF that you can just download. Okay, yeah, and that's probably because I already put in my email address. Um, all right, yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's it. So, And then my article, Why, why Cleaning Humans and Dinosaurs Coexisted Isn't Ridiculous, is found on my articles page. You can download that for free or you can just read it online. Um, and um, my, my goal is to create um, material that is visual and interactive and um, that speaks to the overall supernatural worldview. So not just the science right. stuff, but the Godhead in the Old Testament, harmonizing Genesis and um, you know, helping students understand you have to be afraid of science. <laughs> it's Right. It's a handicapped observational system. It works good for what it does, but it can't observe all of reality. And don't be afraid of, of those naturalists, materialists, evolutionists, because they believe in supernatural things too. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, David, it has been a pleasure. Uh, we we talked for longer than I was expecting, and the content. I mean. Boy, it's just fascinating stuff. It has been an honor to have you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. And um, thank you um, for having this passion to bring this material to people. And I hope that as more of us um, understand the power of origins, the power of God's story with us, we'll get more excited about this and share it with others. Okay, guys. Again, that was David Harrison. His website, sparklightplanet.com. I have a feeling I'll probably have David back uh, sometime in the future. He's just, well, he's a good guy, and he's got a lot to bring to the table. So uh, that's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.